You can take your Bibles, and if you will, turn to Psalm 51. We're going to look at that this morning. There's a story, though, a backstory to the song. Really, Psalm 51 is a song. It's a song of confession. As David is worshiping God, and a part of his worship in Psalm 51 is confession. You see, the backstory to Psalm 51 is in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And, and what we read of that story in 2 Samuel is that it was in the springtime. Much like it is right now in the spring of the year, and Samuel tells us that it was customary in the spring that the kings would send their men out to war. And Joab, the commander of King David's army, went out to war and fought against the Amorites, and Samuel tells us that he decimated them. They, they conquered them. And, but, but it tells us that during that time, David had stayed back in Jerusalem. He didn't go out with his forces to fight. And it was during one of those days while the kingdom, in a sense, was void of all the men who had gone to war that David is lounging around in his palace and he gets up from the couch and he makes his way up on top of the roof of the palace. And as he's there on top of his roof, he looks across and Samuel tells us that there was a beautiful woman named Bathsheba and she's there on the top of her roof bathing. And David looks at her. Her beauty evidently struck him. And he had a desire for her. So he grabs one of his servants and he says, Go and inquire as to who this lady is that I'm viewing bathing on top of her roof. The servant says, David, this is... Bathsheba, she's the wife of Uriah. He's one of your soldiers that's out fighting. And David says, well, bring her, bring her to me. And so they bring Bathsheba to the palace where David is. And Samuel tells, her, tells us that David took her and he lay with her. He had sex with her. And then it leaves us off at this first passage that she had gone back to her own house. And while she's there, she realizes that She's pregnant. She had been taken by the king. She's married to Uriah. She has a one-night stand, basically. And then she realizes she's pregnant. David's got a problem on his hands. Would you agree with that? Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look at David's song of confession, God, that we would see how deep or sin is in our own hearts. That God, our heart would cry out as David cries out in this psalm, Lord, for his sins that to us seem very grave, but God, recognizing that our minimal sin is just as offensive to a holy God. God, would our hearts be broken. Lord, once our hearts are broken, God, I pray that we would taste and see that the Lord is indeed good because He has extended to us grace through His Son, Jesus. Lord, I am realize that, God, my, I shouldn't be the man preaching this message today. But God, is, I'm preaching this, Lord, I, it, it's to me as well, first, as well to all of us. So, Holy Spirit, we desire to please you, to walk with you as disciples. 
Let your words speak to us by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, uh, David recognizes he's got this problem. So how many of us recognize that when we, when we mess up, we commit a sin, we do something we know we ought not do, the thing that we go into is damage control, right? How can I keep from getting found out? How can I cover up this thing and maybe nobody else will know? How can I devise a plan? And David devises a plan. He decides that he will have Uriah brought back into the kingdom, away from the battlefield where he is, and that hopefully with this reprieve or this time of leave from the battlefield, that while he's in Jerusalem, perhaps he'll go to his own house, and perhaps he and Bathsheba will lay together, and then it won't be obvious that Bathsheba got pregnant while Uriah was out on the battlefield. So he invites Uriah, they have some time together, and David says, you know, stay the night, go home to your own place and get your feet washed, get a bath and uh, en enjoy yourself and then you can go back. And but Uriah, being the man of character that he was, said, you know what, there's no way that I'm going to go home in the comfort of my home while the other soldiers that I fight with and they're giving their lives on the battlefield, they're sleeping in booths out in the water, they're fighting. There's no way that I'm going to enjoy the pleasure that I've been afforded while they're there. David learns of it the next morning that Uriah had just slept there at the gate, and so he says, man, this didn't work. Let me do something different. So he invites Uriah again to his palace that evening, and he, and he throws a banquet, a lot of food that's there, and Samuel's very specific to tell us that, that David got Uriah drunk. Now, how many of us know we do stupid stuff when we're drunk? Amen. And so he gets him drunk, and he thinks, well, maybe if I get him drunk, he'll go home, and then he'll sleep with Uriah, and we can cover this thing over. But it didn't work. David, I mean, Uriah, even in that state, decided, hey, man, I am not going to my house. My brethren are out there dying, and I'm staying here. And so David recognizes that, man, his attempt to try to cover up his sin has failed, and so he devises devises another plan, and he sends with Uriah a letter to Joab, who's the captain of the army, and he gives him instruction in the letter, listen, while you go to battle, while you go to advance on the city, I want you to take Uriah, and I want you to put Uriah right in the front and in the heat of the battle, and the moment they're there at the walls of the city, then I want you to command your men to withdraw, to, to um to just abandon Uriah there, and surely he'll be killed and he'll die. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what happened. So now David, in trying to cover up his sin, he takes it to the next degree or the next step. And now murder is on his hands. He's committed adultery. He's fathered a child out of wetlock. He's taken what's not his, and then he has the husband killed. And we sit there and we go, that's disgusting, right? Guy comes back with a report to David to tell David, David, the plan has succeeded. And then I find this ironic. If you're, if you're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, after David gets word that Uriah has been killed, this is kind of the sadistic content to this. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you go and tell Joab. 
Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage them. And what David is doing, David's sending word back to Joab. Joab, don't worry that you were a co-conspirator in the murder of Uriah. Everything's going to be okay. Now let's have victory over the Amorites. Isn't that sick? Samuel tells us that in this, that last verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David sends his prophet Nathaniel to David. And David receives Nathaniel, and Nathaniel begins to tell him a story that there was this rich man, and he had all kinds of livestock, had a lot of lambs, and he was very wealthy. And in the same village with this rich man is that there's a poor man, and this poor man only has one little ewe lamb. And every day the little lamb is treated like a child of his own. As a matter of fact, David, this poor man loves the lamb like his own daughter. And when they're eating at the table, the lamb is brought there to the table, and the lamb is fed just like one of the children, and and the poor man's children play with him. He loves this little lamb, but there was a visitor that came to the village, and the rich man was going to receive him, and rather than taking one of the lambs, one of the many lambs that this rich man has, to slaughter and feed to his guests, he goes over to this poor man's house, and he takes his one little ewe lamb, and he takes it and slaughters it so that he can feed to his guests. And then the Scriptures tell us that David, when he hears this from Nathaniel, he gets angry. He's getting mad, and he says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan looks at David, and he says, David, you're the man. David recognizes the depth and the brevity of his sin. We confronted with it, and isn't it just like us sometimes to have righteous indignation that David was ready to kill the rich man and all of a sudden realizing he was guilty of the same thing and that it was him. God pronounces his judgment against David because David had sinned and said, David, for the rest of your life, the sword will never leave your house. As a matter of fact, David's last days on this earth were spent running from his very own son who was trying to kill him as a consequence of this sin here. There are other consequences. Bathsheba had been violated. Uriah is now murdered. And we're going to find that the baby that was born of Bathsheba is going to die as a result of David's sin. Nathan says an interesting thing to David here, though. At the end of the chapter, at the end of this passage, Nathan says to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Or put away means to to pass over, or, or, or more literal sense, to dismiss. That God had dismissed or put away David's sin. Does that strike you odd like it does me? I mean, how can a just God, how can a righteous and holy God just put away adultery, 
Just put away murder and just put away the consequences of the sin and the baby. And what about the mother and father of Bathsheba and Uriah? Don't you think they were hurt as well? How can God just put it away? David, in the midst of this, goes to the temple. And he begins to pour his heart out to God. And and I believe it was there while David was in the temple that he may have even written the words to this song, Psalm 51, or at least the idea was born in his heart and his mind. And And he wrote this psalm, this song of confession to the Lord. You know, one of the advantages that we have of corporate worship, not only is it a time that we come together as a body to praise God, to give Him glory, But you know what, I've discovered that sometimes in that corporate time of worship, it's a time that the Holy Spirit will bring to mind those things in my heart that need to be right with Him. And it's also a joy to have a time of confession before the Lord. This last week we were in Liberia. And it was during the middle of the week, and all of a sudden one of these monsoon rains come. And we were in a little grass shack, literally. I'll show you a picture at the end of the service. And so the water's pouring through the roof, and we're, and I'm talking a downpour. And we ran to find cover because lightning was there under this one little place that was a little block structure that had a tin roof over it. And we're all huddled down inside of this place. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is the way these people live every single day of their life. And so we're there with many of the nationals that were in the room, women and children, and we're all taking shelter. And all of a sudden, the ladies that are in there begin to break out in song. They sang the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. It was conviction. Because I recognize and realize that them in such poverty and me in such wealth, they can praise God even in the midst of that where my sin was, <laughs> this, this stinks, okay? <laughs> you see, sometimes it's good to confess in worship, and that's what David does in this psalm in Psalm 51. Turn there with me, if you will, Psalm 51. David's responding to the misery that he's feeling, that he's sensing after he had committed such atrocities. And the one thing that David does here is the thing that all of us need to do, and and that is to turn our hope in the mercies and graces of God. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, David knew sometimes the thing that we forget very often is that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of grace as he was displayed to Moses there on the mountain when the Lord passed by and God said, I am God, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. I keep loving kindness for a thousand. I forgive iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. David recognized he was one of the guilty, and the only place that David had to turn 
was to the mercy and the grace of God. You see, while we may not be guilty of the same offenses that David had committed against God, Bathsheba and Uriah and the child, just as David is, we are guilty in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. Just like David, we need to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Notice what he prays second in verses 2 and verse 7. He prays that God will cleanse him from his sin. Verse 2. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Don't get hung up on those two words. You see, iniquity is that thing we often do. Sometimes, I think every one of us have done it. It's when we know what not to do, and yet we go ahead and do it. Anybody committed any iniquities? Everybody raise your hand, please. Thank you. Now I feel better. God, forgive me of my iniquity and cleanse me from all of my sin, that sin that he's talking about or, or the unknown things that he does and the sin that is within him just like it's in every one of us born in the nature of Adam. You see, David's crying. He's going, God, cleanse me with your hyssop. And if you're familiar, familiar with what the hyssop was, the hyssop was that desert branch that the priest used when he would sprinkle it in the blood and he would splash it over the mercy seat there in the holy of holies it was also the branch that was used that as the death angel passed over in Egypt when the children of Israel were held captive there they would take the hyssop dip it in the blood and sprinkle it on the doorposts of their home so that the angel would pass over and death wouldn't come there and it was a function that the priest fulfilled but what David's saying is here there is no priest that can take care of what I'm guilty of Man cannot take care of the corruption and the depth of depravity in my heart, is what David's saying. But thank God that on this side of the cross, we understand, as John has told us in his first letter, is that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Can you say thank you, Lord, for that? And John goes on to say that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And sometimes we get the idea, well, wait a minute, we're under the dispensation of grace and we don't need to confess our sins. Yes, we do. It's not that we confess our sin for forgiveness. We confess our sin to acknowledge the forgiveness that Jesus has attained for us when he shed his blood on the cross. You see, the cross is not the reason that we don't ask for forgiveness. The cross is the confidence that we have that when we do ask, the answer will be yes. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace boldly so that we might receive mercy in our time of need and it's by the blood of Jesus that we can approach that the third thing I want us to notice here is not only that David prays for cleansing from sin but David confesses the extreme seriousness of his sin he expresses the extreme seriousness of his sin you see David just belabors over his sin and the psalm as you read it 
you realize that it's not just a simple passive confession, but there's really a passion in David that he intensifies and brings to light the intensity of his sin. Not me. I want to minimize the intensity of my sin. I only want to confess up to enough just to make myself seem guilty, but I don't want to go all the way and say, this is how wretched I am. Are you with me on that? David recognizes that that God is a holy God, and all sin in his sight is an affront and an offense to him, and he is just. Just. David doesn't offer any excuses in this. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, it was the circumstances I was under. And we think about what he did, you know, the sexual sin. He didn't say, well, you know, I had, I, I had, this, I had testosterone running all through my veins and I just couldn't help it. He doesn't say, well, you know, my mother rejected me when I was a child and that's just the way I have to, that's just the way I am. My father beat me and I really had no relationship and all those things are serious and all those things impact us. But listen, sin is foreborn in who we are and we all have the propensity to this degree in our lives. He's saying in verse 3, I can't get it out of my mind. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You ever have one of those? You ever one of those from 30 years ago, maybe? You ever one of those from last week? It's like that videotape that just loops over and over in our brain, and we just can't get rid of it. That's what David's saying. Listen, my sin is ever before me. And let me tell you, if you have one from 30 years ago, the blood of Jesus reaches back 30 years ago. Amen? And he's saying to you this morning, listen, my blood has paid for that. I do not want you bound to that any longer. Receive what I have done for you by my blood and be set free from that. But David's saying, man, I just can't get it out of my mind. And then he recognizes in verse 4 that while, yes, Bathsheba was hurt, Uriah was definitely hurt, the baby was hurt, the parents were hurt, he recognizes that his sin was sin against God only. Look what he says. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, the point is, what makes sin, sin, is that it's against God. You see, we hurt people, but we sin against God. David recognized that at the root of it, while yes, there are all the consequences of his sin. Now, how many of us understand that God will give us forgiveness, but he will not always spare us from the consequence of our sin, right? He doesn't try to give any self-justification or vindicate himself. He vindicates God. Really, look at the last part of that verse. Done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know what David's saying here? David's really saying, God, I deserve to be damned. And God, you'd be just in damning me. 
You see, every one of us in this room today deserve to be damned. And God would be just in damning all of us. You see, the question I, I, I have to ask myself really is, is this the way I feel about my sin? And it's a question you need to ask yourself this morning. Is, is this the way we feel about our sin? Or have we become jaded at times, or especially if we've lived a Christian life for a while, we kind of figure out, well, these are the okay things and these are the non-okay things, Right? But regardless of the degree, it's an affront, it's an offense to God, and it's sin. And I'm afraid to say that sometimes I don't feel this way about my sin. Are you that way? Please say yes so I don't feel like a schmuck up here. Yeah. I need to ask myself, do I recognize that there is this extreme gap between me and God? That God is absolutely holy. That He is absolutely righteous. And me and of myself, I am as far away from Him as I could ever be. Except for the gift of sacrifice of the blood of Jesus for my sins. David recognizes in verse 6 that he knows the truth. He says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You see, David recognizes that it's not just an external matter, but it's an internal matter. Do you notice that in David's repentance in Psalm 51, there's not the first mention of sex, of adultery. There's not the first mention of murder of Uriah. There's not the first mention of how he may have hurt and offended the other family members. None of that's there. You see, oftentimes we look at the symptom rather than the root. And the symptom of adultery and the symptom of murder came from the root that all of us are born in sin. And you may be here this morning and you never committed any of that, but you have the potential to. Or you've had the hard attitude just like I have. Jesus said, you know what? I, you've heard the law. Do not murder. And oh, Man, I've never murdered. No, but I'm telling you, if you've hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. You ever spread any gossip? <laughs> Trying to tear down somebody else? That's, that's kind of a definition of hate. Or it's a manifestation of that. So, so see, we're all in the same playing field. Somebody said the ground at the cross is level. He draws attention to his inborn corruption here in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not saying that the act was sinful, but we're born in that nature. Notice what he does in, in his outcry here. David expresses not only a confession, but a deep desire to be changed. You see, I'm convinced that the person who has been born again, who has had a transformed life, 
that where once they had no desire to change, that all of a sudden they have a passion and a desire to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And it makes me nervous and it scares me sometimes, even Christians that I know that have no desire to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It alarms me in my own life sometimes that that's a a secondary conscious thing that I fall from that, that I go away from that. God conform me to the likeness of Christ because if I stay in this condition, I'm just miserable. Right, right? Look what he says. He pleads with God. He prays for a heart and a spirit that are new, right, and firm. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He doesn't ask God, God, just wash my heart. He says, create in me a clean heart. Create, that word bara in the Hebrew means to create out of nothing. It's what comes from Genesis 1. When God created, God, only you can do that. Listen, I can't clean my heart. I can't create a new heart. Only God can do that. So David's crying out, God, create in me a clean heart. David wanted a new heart, not just a washed heart. David wanted more than just restoration. David was designing regeneration. The next thing that he does in verse 12, he prays that God will restore to him the joy of his salvation. Maybe you don't rec- you probably already recognize this. You know, one of the things that robs us from the joy of our salvation more than anything is, is unconfessed sin. And it's one of those things that the enemy likes to do to trip us up. You see, he's there forever accusing us because he's aware. And he's there to condemn. The Holy Spirit's there to convict so that we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for your blood. But the enemy's there to condemn. And the enemy convinces us that we can't go to God with our sin because, oh man, listen, we need to run to him with our sin. Be like Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he talks about the things that he does and he knows he's not to do, the things he's not, he doesn't do that he knows he should do. And he says, who will rescue me from the body, this body of death? Oh, thank you, Jesus. Right? There's an overflow of praise, verse 15. Oh, Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. I pondered this. I pondered this. Why is David saying, God, open my lips so that my mouth may proclaim your praise? And I realized that, you know what? When, when I let stuff harbor in my heart, sin, it robs me of my ability to praise God in spirit and in truth I can go through the motions I can clap my hands I can do the the jig up here to the song right open my lips oh God see sometimes our our worship is dead in spirit and truth it may be alive in volume and song and lights And just like Jesus said, as he quoted Isaiah, you people 
not you people, but maybe. Praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Let me wrap this up. Verse 13, it's kind of a strange thing that he says here. After he's praying for restoration and joy of his salvation, then he cries out and he says, Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. See, David recognized that the thing that would keep him from testifying to the goodness of God more than anything was unconfessed sin in his own life. The thing that will keep you and I from confessing, from declaring the goodness of God to those that we come in contact with, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers, other people at school, will be because we know we've got this stuff here that's not right. Opportunity comes along to express God's goodness or share Christ with somebody else. We're not going to do it. You see, I'm convinced we all want to, but we don't. And the reason we don't is because the enemy's done a number of us on us, and we've not run to Jesus and washed ourselves anew under his blood, and it keeps us from sharing Christ with others. I want to encourage us as a body that when we come together to worship the Lord corporately, that we take some time to allow the Holy Spirit to bring to light, whether it be attitudes or wrong thinking, actions, etc., and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Maybe even start with saying, Holy Spirit, is there something in me today that's going to keep me from worshiping you in spirit and truth? And take advantage of the benefit of corporate worship so we might confess to the Lord and run into His loving arms of grace and receive the forgiveness that he has promised us through his son, Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and close us in a song. And what I want to ask you to do is just reflect on the song. You can remain seated. You can stand. Whatever you want to do. But what is it that the Lord's saying to you this morning? You know, I spent the first 25, 30 minutes of this message just kind of beating us all up. You know what, I, I really need to be, to be beat up sometimes to be reminded again of how deep and how great the grace of God is. Run to His grace this morning in this closing song. Whatever it is He's speaking to you, be obedient and respond to Him. And so if the team would go ahead and lead us in the song. pray if you'd like to come and pray and there'll be some that'll come here and pray with you. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you've never placed your trust in Him, I would invite you to come and express that you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven and you have a relationship to God, you can come during this time. Let's just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Shameful sin, please.
Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who has given us power that we might have victory over sin in our life, God. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love towards us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I share just a couple of things with you before you leave. You can remain standing this last week. Uh, by the way, uh, I just want to thank John and Jeff for bringing. Didn't they just, man, just open the word in a great way? Y'all, thank you. Um, we were uh, there in Liberia to train, begin training in about a two and a half, three year program of national pastors, 25 there in a non-formal theological training and got some pictures. This, uh, my, listen, kids, if you ever complain about your classroom, this is a classroom that we were in uh, all week there with the pastors. And this next slide shows some of the pastors that are there. Uh, y'all, I don't know if you, re- if you realize the, the opportunity that have been afforded these men. These men will never, ever have any opportunity for any kind of formal education. And so you are sending myself and others to go to train and equip these men in their study of the Word of God. These are pastors and church planners. If you'll pause on this one for a moment, these are two of the pastors that are there. And if you'll notice, they're holding in their hands a New International Version study Bible. Most of them had never even seen a study Bible. You and I have two or three in our house. And they just had tears when they received these study Bibles. This is the only resource most of these men will ever have to study and make disciples in their own congregation. We were told that those study Bibles to find them in country in Liberia would be about $150 per Bible in the country of Liberia. Isn't that something? So with that, uh, you, First Baptist Conyers, I, I took a step of faith. We got these Bibles for these pastors and uh, I am giving you the opportunity that if you want to help to contribute a little bit today uh, towards the purchase of these Bibles, and if we have more than enough, we'll use it for the next time we buy Bibles for the next group of men. They're going to be offering plates at the doors when you exit today, and if you've got a couple of bucks in your pocket, uh, if you could contribute that, that would be great. Uh, Lord bless you, keep you. Remember, 5.30 this evening to celebrate with Miss Vicki. Have a great afternoon. You're dismissed. Oh